before we get started today, I wanted to uh, again advertise, push, uh, exhort something that is exciting that will be coming up next November. For those of you who uh, have not already heard um, or who uh, do not already know, in, in November, November 7th through 16th, uh, Morgan and I are going to be leading a trip with Mike Fanning to the Holy Land. We're going to be going to Israel. Uh, beginning November 7th of November, uh, November 7th of 2022, and we're looking forward to that. Now, I told the group last night um, the reason we chose this uh, particular time is because November 7th is Morgan's birthday, and I figured that way I don't have to get real creative about a present. So, um, no, but but it is, and actually November 7th is uh, is her birthday, and, and who, what better way to spend your, your birthday than in an airport? I mean, absolutely. But... Um, but it is going to be a great trip, and, and you know, I've, I've brought up this picture again because this is a picture of the Jordan River. We were talking about that last week, and, and the reason that I really do believe in travel as a learning experience is because there's just something about being there. These places reinforce the reality of what we learn, what we read about, and, you know, I've, I have for years read about all these places, Jordan, Gilgal, Jericho, Jerusalem, uh, Capernaum, the Sea of Galilee, but you know, but I've, I, I won't say I've felt like a fake, but I've, but I've definitely feel like, gosh, I've got to get there. You know, it's like whenever people say, whenever you talk about Scotland, you're always very animated. It's like, well, part of that's because I've been there. I've touched the rocks and I've been in the castles and I've seen the places where, where these things happened. And, and one of the things that I have heard from everybody who's ever been to Israel, including Mike, Mike Fanning, our, our leader, is that once you, once you go to Israel, you will never read the Bible the same way again. Now, that does not mean that your, your reading of the Bible is deficient until then or anything like that, but it is really one of those great opportunities and one of those great, uh, one of those great I think, privileges that we have. So we want, to, we want to invite you all to come. If you want to find out information about this trip, it is at mikefanning.com. Uh, mikefanning.com. It's MBF, uh, or, uh, Mike Fanning Enterprises, I believe is the name of it, but it's mikefanning.com. There's a drop-down menu and just look for the First Pres November trip. It will give you the itinerary. It will tell you about you know, everything that's included in the cost of the trip, which is pretty much everything. Um, it'll tell you all that kind of stuff. It'll, you know, it, it's really a lot of good information. Um, if you want to make a deposit or you want to find out like the, the exact details of the trip and stuff like that, you do have to, you do have to sign, the, you have to send, them the, send Mike your email and everything just to kind of show that you're actually com committed. I think they, um, you know, he wants, that's the way he, that he runs that, that business. And so we're glad that, that he's handling all those administrative pieces. But as far, as far as it goes, all administrative questions and things like that, please direct to to Mike Fanning. If you all don't know Mike personally, Mike is the son of Buckner Fanning, um, who was a longtime pastor at Trinity Baptist Church here. He is also a scholar. He's, he's got his PhD in, uh, in the Old Testament, and he is just an extraordinary group leader. He, you know, he has kind of made his ministry over the years, taking people to learn in Israel. And so, uh, and so that's, you know, that is really uh, uh, just a gift to the church and has been a gift to many people in this church. It was fun. We brought it up at our early Thursday morning Bible study, and there, uh, there were several veterans of the trip who were just 
just sharing glowing reports about it. So I hope that I hope that many of you will be able to go. Many of you all have already been, um, and so just looking forward to hearing you from that. Somebody asked me this morning, said, said, you know, is this trip only open to First Pres members? And of course, you know, we, we want to encourage our First Pres members to go. We want to make sure there's space for them. But uh, the way I'm going to say it from now on is, is this, the, uh, just to, so we are clear about this, it is only open to First Pres members or future First Pres members. So just saying, if you get on that bus, that's not sheep stealing. That's, that's you know, you, you've wandered out of the fold if wherever you were, and now we're working on you. You are fair game. Okay, so tell your friend, if they want to come with First Pres, that's great. Tell them they've been predestined to come on this trip, and they will be a Presbyterian by the time they get off the bus. Okay, so anyhow, thank you. Uh, enough of that commercial, please. Uh, there's also some printed material. I will say that... that Sheila put together this printed material. It's most of the information on the website. The difference between this and the website is that if you find the link on this and you start poking it with your finger, nothing will happen. Uh, you will not get any additional information. So, uh, so please take that, uh, take that if you would like one or check the website. All right, let's, uh, let's open with a word of prayer. Thank you, O oh God, for bringing us together today that we may study your word, that we may drawn, be drawn closer to you and so that we may understand more fully what you have brought into our lives through, through your Son, Jesus Christ, and what you've brought into our world through your people, Israel. Now, Lord, bless us and keep us as we turn to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You all may have heard me say in my sermon last Sunday that uh, every now and then I hear a discouraging statement from people, and that is, and I hear this from other Christians all the time, uh, sadly, more than I would like, they, I hear them say things along the lines of, well, you know what, Bob, I don't need the Old Testament. I am a New Testament Christian. And that always really bothers me because, as it turns out, all the disciples were Old Testament Christians. Uh, all, you know, Jesus, his, his scripture was the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, you cannot be a New Testament Christian without, without the Old Testament. At least you're not going to understand as deeply what, you, what is happening in the New Testament until you have a grasp of the old. As, as St. Augustine said, the, in the old, the new is concealed, and in the new, the old is revealed. And what we see is the unity of Scripture in both the Old and the New Testaments. And that's particularly important today as we, as we, as we move through the story of Joshua. But it's also important on Sundays as we are studying the book of Hebrews right now. I hope that uh, for those of you who are in this, in this group or watching us online, I hope that as you are hearing this, these sermons on Hebrews, you're able to, to connect some dots between what's happening in the book of Hebrews and what happened in the book of Numbers and Joshua and Deuteronomy and all these other things that we've been touching on because these things are very similar. But there's also, there's not just a unity between the Old and New Testaments, there's also a unity in the New Testament world and our world. Even though time marches forward, it moves on to God's destiny, it is still a world filled with broken sinners. We are still a world of conflict and we are still a world of just things that we recognize. And uh, as a matter of fact, I remember the great Carl, uh, great Carl Barth, theologian of the 21st, uh, 20th century, said that we should do theology with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. Now, it's interesting, it's important to understand the context of when he said that. When he said that was not just in a general sense that, oh, we ought to be reading the newspaper in one hand and the Bible in the other. 
He was saying that on the day that the state of Israel was founded in 1949. And he was looking particularly at the book of Revelation. He said, okay, things might start happening here. Nobody would ever accuse Bart of being like a, a wild and crazy sort of, uh, sort of end of the world, end times type of guy. But he said, you know, we need to be paying attention because in some ways, yes, history marches on, but in other ways, the more things, you know, the more things um, change, the more they stay the same. As Mark Twain once said, history doesn't always repeat, but it does rhyme. And so what we see in the past, we will hear again in the future. And, and I was thinking about that as I was watching the news a couple days ago. And I, I saw pictures of Russian soldiers massing on the borders of Ukraine. You know, they're massing, you know, to the east. They're massing to the north in Belarus. Um, you, know, you know, there have been rumors of connected cyber attacks. Um, and uh, as you can imagine... Um, things over there are starting to get tense, not just in Ukraine, but also back in Moscow and in countries like Lithuania and Poland, where Arena and Morgan and Aaron and I will be heading uh, in a few weeks. I mean, there's, there is some pressure. There's some tension there. And, you know, there's, there's something about an enemy massing across your border because they don't just gather for no purpose. You know, the purpose of the, of the Hebrews at this point was starting to become very clear, at least to some people. Some people may have thought, oh, well, they've just settled on the other side of the Jordan. That nice group of people who escaped from Egypt. Isn't that nice of them that they found a place over there where they can stay? Well, no. They're starting to, they're starting to move a little bit. And as last week we saw, they not only are massed on the other side of the Jordan, they have crossed. Well, so, you know, we read the Bible from the Hebrew perspective. But if we were to read it from the Canaanite perspective, we would not see this as a glorious story of God's fulfillment of a promise to give them a homeland. We would see this as what? An invasion. We would see this as a, as a monumental act of war. And so there is a, a tension in these, you know, in these stories that we need not or we should not lose. Now, that's not to say that all of a sudden we're going to start seeing things from the Canaanite perspective. But, but it does remind me again that that these, you know, that this history does, it doesn't always repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And, and we can just imagine just the, the, just the intensity of what was going on, not only on the side of the Canaanites, but also as the people of Israel were going into the land, we've got to remember that, that they were probably pretty nervous about this as well. I mean, their ancestors had been so scared, or not their ancestors, their parents had been so scared about this that they, were, that they didn't even go into the land. And even though they've mustered up the faith to follow God into the promised land, well, it's still pretty scary. Because even though they, you know, they cross from one side of the river into the, uh, onto the other, they needed to have some reassurances that, that, that God really was in control and that God really was with them. And so, you know, what was, you know, what was the sign that God was really in control and that he really was with them. Well, we, we've had many. But last week we talked extensively about the miracle of the Jordan River. That he actually, God, you know, Lord of heaven and earth, author of creation, judge over the laws of physics, actually took water and heaped it up. Remember that? We use that phrase. He heaped it up, piled it up like stones. You ever tried to pile up water before? 
I mean, it's, it's impossible to do unless you're God. It's one of those things that only God can do. And yet maybe this wasn't as big as the Red Sea, but it is every bit as impossible other than by the supernatural power of God. And so there are many, many reassurances that keep coming. And one of the things that I really want to point out to you today is a sort of a sense of parallel stories. If we look at what happened when the people were coming out of Exodus and then coming into the Promised Land, there are, there are certain parallels that are very intentional and are, I, I believe are, are put there as reminders of what God has done before. But another, another piece that I, wanna, I want you to think about is just what a watershed, and I, no pun intended with the river part, but the, what a watershed moment this is for the people of Israel. I mean, it was a watershed moment when they came out of Egypt, but this is another watershed moment as they come into the Promised Land. The Exodus was a big, central, cross-the-line moment, and the Isodus, the going into, if Exodus is going out of, Isodus means going into, the Isodus is another watershed change moment for them. And so from this point on, we're going to start seeing things sort of, sort of reflected in sort of a, a two-system, a, a, a two-period a two, a two reflection of time. There's before the Jordan and after the Jordan, kind of B.C., A.D., you know, before you got your driver's license, after you got your driver's license, you know, how did your life change, you know, before kids, after kids, you know, it's, it's all these, you know, we all have these watershed moments in our lives, and this is a national one. We go from before the Jordan to after the Jordan, and remember, it's, you know, it's not that far, but, but they cross the land, across the river, and everything about their lives changed. Let's take a look at that. Look at, first of all, uh, Joshua chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Now last week we talked about crossing the Jordan, so in chapter 4, When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God in the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in the time to come, What do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over before when it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. So here God is saying that you have been you have passed through the Jordan. Now I want you to send 12 men to go pick up stones from the Jordan and bring them out onto the shore, and I want you to make a monument out of them. I want you to have them come, I want you to have them bring them out and set them up as a marker. Have any of you ever lived in Virginia? Okay. 
One of the things that is characteristic of Virginia is you cannot go into any building that does not have a historical marker on it. You walk into, you know, you walk into a 7-Eleven, George Washington bought biscuits here. <laughs> you know, you, 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 walk into, uh, you walk into any farmhouse, you know, that, you know, uh, Thomas Jefferson slept here, or you know, whatever. I mean, every place you go, it has a historical marker on it. Why? It's because there is a rich history in Virginia, as with many other places, and people want to remember that history. One of the great, uh, one of the great, um, what's the word I'm looking for? One of the great tragedies of history is that if we are not intentional about remembering it, then what happens? We forget. You know, go back and ask your kids, your grandkids. What their, grand, what their grandparents' first names were. If you don't believe me, go ask your grandkids or your kids what their grandparents' first names were. They may remember, oh, that was, uh, that was grandmama. That was her, what was her first name? You know, if, if, if she worked, where did she work? Your grandfather, you know, what did he do for a living? You know, what, where was he born? You know, why is it that we freak out every time we, dri we drive past, you know, Hickory Grove, South Carolina. There's really nothing there. But that's where a lot of my people came from. You know, wh why is that? You know, but if your kids, if we don't teach that history to our kids, if we don't teach that history to the next generation, they're going to forget. Or worse, they never will have known. I remember, I remember uh, we were in my, um, in my aunt's house down at Hilton Head, and there was a great cabinet up in the corner and it's an old dentist cabinet. And, um, and Bo looked at it, he's trying to figure out what it was. He, says, he, said, he said, what is that? Said, what, what, what's, what's this piece of furniture? It wasn't here last year. And I said, oh, well, that was your great granddaddy Gamble's dentist cabinet. It was in his office for years. He says, who's that? Oh, that was Gigi's dad. <laughs> well, who's Gigi? That's your, you know who Gigi is. That was your great grandmother. And her father was a dentist in West Jefferson, North Carolina. And so we started talking about that history. And it all came about because, you know, in my aunt's house was this object that, that just created some questions. And it was, a, and it was, and it was wonderful. You know, I, I never, I mean, I, I always thought it was just a really cool piece. It's just got lots of drawers and things like that. It's a, you know, a dentist cabinet from the early 1900s, late 1800s. It's a beautiful piece of furniture, but never thought about that you know the sort of spiritual family value that an object like that might have. You know, we, and our our house is filled with antiques, and I mean to the degree that you know we need to get rid of some of them. But we we've inherited a lot, and we're kind of we hate to get rid of that stuff. But but you know, you know, everything in our house has a provenance, has a story behind it, and it's fun to be able to share that with the kids. So God wanted to give to His children something similar to that to mark the day that they came into his promised land. And so he told them, I want you to go and I want you to set up just a stone pile. What Hebrews, what the book of, uh, of Joshua calls in Hebrew an Ebenezer. Eben meaning, meaning a stone. And I want you to put together this pile of stones and I want you to make it, and I want you to put it there not because it's a, a way marker, not because it's like, a, it's like a watch out high water mark or sign like that, but to remember, to commemorate what happened at this place. Now, you may think, well, okay, so it's a pile of rocks, no big deal. Think about that pile of rocks, though. First of all, do rocks pile themselves up 
naturally. Not really. I mean, you can, I mean, you go to some places like New Mexico and stuff and you see where they've been eroded and dirt's been eroded around them, but they don't pile themselves up. It's kind of like, I heard the old joke about, um, uh, if you ever, you know, if you ever see a, if you ever are driving down a country road and, um, and, and you see a, you see a turtle on top of a fence post, uh, you know two things about that situation. One, uh, it's not supposed to be there and it didn't get there by himself. Um, you know, that's, so just take that for a little bit of country wisdom, you know. <laughs> you know, sometimes you see something that's like, you know, it's not supposed to be there, he didn't get it there by himself. But this stone pile, it's not supposed to be there. Why is it there? It didn't get there by itself. But what else would have been interesting about it? Where did, God did not say, okay, go gather 12 stones. Where did he say to get them? Out of the Jordan River. What's different about stones in a river from stones on the bank? They're rounded. They're smooth. They're, you know, they've got that different look about them. What are they doing up here? Now remember, where did they carry them? They carried them to the camp at Gilgal, where, which is where they made camp. Where was that? About three miles away. You know, I mean, now we understand a little bit more about geology and things like that. And yes, you can find fossils of seashells on the top of the Appalachian Mountains and places like that. But, you know, if you see a pile of river rocks three miles away from a river, maybe that's something special. Maybe that's something you want to ask questions about, like an antique dentist cabinet and my, and my aunt's very, very beautifully but modernly uh, modernly decorated uh, house at the coast. It's something that stands out as special. And the purpose is to get people to ask questions about it. Now, we're going to come back to this, but notice there were two Ebenezers made that day. There was the one Ebenezer up in the camp, which became a memorial. And there's another one. Where did they build the other one? In the river. That's weird. We'll come back to that. All right, so anyhow, um, but what was the purpose of this? It was, to, it was to generate questions. It was to remind people, remind, remind the people of Israel of what God had done for them. And, and you know, this word remember, I, I, I haven't done a word study on it in a while, so I don't remember how many times the word remember appears in the Bible, but it, it comes a lot. Memory is a key factor of faith. Because memory is a key factor of gratitude. You can't have gratitude without having some memory of what somebody has done for you. Even if it's a short-term memory. But memory, faith, and gratitude all go together. Remember that when Moses, before he passed, before they, before they crossed the Jordan, sat the people in, on the plains of Moab and he restated the law. And what did he say? How did he begin that restatement of the law, especially the Ten Commandments? Remember that I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Remember this. And he wants them to know. God wants them to know their history because this is a new generation. One of the saddest chapters in the whole Bible to me is Judges chapter 2, in which it talks about a new, a new generation that rose up that remembered not. Moses and Joshua and that generation that had come into the land. They had forgotten their history. They had forgotten who they are. They'd forgotten their stories. And so the night before he was crucified, 
Jesus built another Ebenezer of sorts, a reminder. And he said, after he'd taken bread and after he'd taken wine and he'd given it to him, he said what? He said, take this and eat it, all of you, and what? Do this in remembrance of me. Memory is not inconsequential. But I also want you to think about something else. Um, as, we, you know, as they are building this, these Ebenezers, this is not just a historical marker. It also has another element to it. Remember that they are coming into a land that has been promised to them, but, they ha- but that they do not yet possess. And imagine, if you will, that while all this is taking on, while all this is taking place, that while they're crossing the river, while they are piling up these stones, while they're making camp at Gilgal, while they are doing everything they're doing, there are people watching them. Do you think that everything they were doing was going unobserved? Remember, here is, and look how close Jericho is to where they are. We're talking about a, about 10-mile stretch here. Everything's pretty close together here. Do you think there were any scouts from Jericho hanging out in the bushes, hanging out in the hills, watching and reporting back to Jericho what was going on? The Bible doesn't say there are, but I, I can imagine that there were probably people from Jericho who were, because we do read later that they hear and they have already heard about the things that are happening. And so we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. But what do you, if you're, the, if you're the people of Jericho, if you're the scouts of Jericho, and you report back that these people, this horde of people has just crossed the river, and now they're building a great big stone pile, what does that look like to you? Hmm? Staying. <laughs> We're staying, yeah. As we look, at, you know, there are going to be several things, several things that happen here with the Hebrews, and just, you know, as we go through the course of the story, that all sort of, I think, some people might consider premature. The first of which is, it looks to me, and it looks like, as you read it in the context of the story, that the people of Israel are building a, a victory monument. They're building a, they're, I mean, they're already building a boundary marker to say, this land is our land. I mean, I, I, I don't know, I, I love military history, but I'm, and, I'm, and, and I, I'm not an expert on this, but I'm pretty sure that Napoleon did not build the Arc de Triomphe in Paris until he had already done a fair amount of conquering. I think he had some serious victories under his belt before he built that monument, right? I don't think, nobody builds a monument to a victory they haven't won yet, unless the victory is already won, but the battle just hadn't been fought yet. So this, this victory, this, you know, these Ebenezers are not just looking back, not just looking back at what God has done, but they're also looking forward to what God is about to do. Now you may be thinking, okay, Bob, that's a little bit of a stretch. Let me make my case with the rest of this chapter. Let's look at what happens next. Um, after they build these piles, one on the ground, uh, one, in, uh, one on the shore or in the camp, one 
uh, in the middle of the river. Then we get to verse 14. And once again, we have, uh, we have Joshua featured in this passage, Joshua 4, 13 and 14. About 40,000 ready for war passed over before the Lord of battle to the plains of Jericho. Now, freeze on that for a second. 40,000. Who are those 40,000? Is that the whole army of Israel? No. 40,000. Those 40,000 are from the tribes that, that had already staked their claim on the other side of the Jordan. Manasseh, Gad, Reuben. They were to be the vanguard. So they're the ones, whenever the, Israel, whenever the people of Israel move, they're the ones who are already dressed for battle. They're the ones who are armed and ready at any time to fight. The other people, yes, there are fighting men in all the other tribes, in Judah, in, uh, in, in Dan, and all the other tribes, but they're moving their families. They're, they're pioneers right now. Yes, they've all got, they've all got a rifle in the covered wagon, but they're, you know, they're more concerned right now about moving their families. So what you have is you've got, I mean, as you cross, as they've crossed the river, they've got 40,000 armed men and hundreds of thousands in reserve. Now again, those scouts are looking at this army, this horde coming across, and those are numbers that the ancient mind can barely wrap its head around. We all throw around the expression myriad. You've all heard the expression of a myriad? What is a myriad? It's a thousand. <laughs> I mean, big deal. <laughs> thousand. <laughs> you know. Myri I mean, that was a big number back then. We're used to city. You know, we, we talk about, you know, a we don't even really consider a, a city big till it's in the millions. A, a big city back then at this time period? A couple thousand. You know, a city of 10,000 would have, I mean, you're talking about something like Memphis in Egypt. I mean, that we're talking, I mean, Babylon. These are 40,000 armed men. That is, a, that is a huge army. I mean, right now, even our militaries right now aren't number their forces in the millions. I mean, even in the Civil War, you had, you know, you had battles where, where you had, you know, 200,000 men involved in a battle, Napoleonic War. I mean, yes, but... But at this time, a huge battle might be a couple of thousand men. 40,000 armed warriors plus hundreds of thousands in reserve. Or tens of thousands in reserve. This is a huge army. And then, verse 14, uh, 13, about 40,000 ready for war passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. And on that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him just as they stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. I think it's fascinating that, that here again is a reaffirmation of Joshua's, uh, Joshua's leadership, which... and. and Again, there are so many parallels here. But one of the things we talked about last week is how, how odd it is that, that here in this story, God says, I'm going to use a miracle to exalt you. And I'm going to use a miracle to exalt you, Joshua. That's not something he does very often. Usually it's about God being exalted, right? But here he's, uses, he's using miracles, the, the Jordan River, to exalt Joshua. He used... The, he used the, the plagues and the Red Sea to exalt Moses, to, say, to, show, uh, to show Pharaoh, this is my guy and I am serious about this. 
And now he's showing the Canaanites, because again, they're watching. Jericho's not far away. He's saying, I am now exalting this as my leader of my people. This guy is not just a cunning strategist or military commander. He has the touch of God upon him. So beware. It's another time when that happens, where God uses a miracle, where God pulls back the curtain to, to really exalt a leader. When does that happen? Well, there's some interesting parallels again. Joshua and the people have just been through the Jordan, and God has said, I'm doing this to exalt you. And last week we likened that to what? Jesus' baptism, the baptism of Israel. What's the parallel here? If that was the baptism of Jesus, what is this? Huh? The baptism of Israel. Uh, well, not, not necessarily the baptism, the thing to still in terms of Joshua. The transfiguration. Because what happened at the transfiguration? God pulls back the curtain and says, I want you to know who this really is. At the, at the Jordan River, the dove descended on, on Jesus and, and, and the heavens split open and the Holy Spirit said what? This is my beloved Son and with Him I am well pleased. Where is that line repeated? On the Mount of Transfiguration. When God once again pulls back the curtain, but this time He shows Jesus what? In all of His glory... You know, with flanked on either side by Moses and Elijah. And he says again, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. But then he adds one more tagline on the Mount of Transfiguration. What does he say? Listen to him. Listen to him. So again, there are, there are parallels with Moses and Joshua and Joshua and Jesus. I am not saying that Jesus or, excuse me, that Joshua or Moses is on the same plane as Jesus. But what we have here is something that is going to rhyme later. It's even, you know, even a connection between their names. Joshua and Yeshua, same name, different accent. But they're the same name, and they remind us that both mean that God saves. This is your Savior. And so once again, Joshua is exalted among, in front of the people. Not just the people of Israel, but also, I believe, all the Canaanites are watching too. Well, we see in chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, that this, this psychological warfare campaign is beginning to have an effect on the Canaanites. Look at verse 5-1. As soon as all the kings of the Am Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites, who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. Now, I want you to read in detail. Read thoughtfully when you read the Scripture. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites, who were by the sea, heard the Lord had dried up the waters. You hear what's happening there? I mean, here's my case that there were people watching. Because this, not only did scouts from Jericho, but apparently scouts from Gath, Ashkelon, all of the cities of the Philistines. Those are, that's who the, the Canaanites by the sea were. Those are the, I mean, those are the Philistines and all the sea peoples. It, basically, what he's saying is that in, Israel, in Israelite terms, the message of the Jordan has already gone coast to coast. 
from the Jordan to the Mediterranean in just a few days. And this is pre, you know, any kind of electronic or any kind of communication that would rapidly, this is word of mouth. This is riders and runners. And already the word has spread that we are being invaded. And it's not, this is not just a regular old invasion. There is something powerful and supernatural about this. Because let me tell you what happened to the Jordan River. Our scouts, with their own eyes, saw the water stopped. It piled up upon itself. And this entire nation of people crossed over. 40,000 soldiers in the front. And who knows how many among the ranks of the people in the back. Here is a, here is a people whose God is with them. You think there was panic in Canaan? Absolutely there was. Um, you know, the people were lit, were just filled with fear. And you can imagine the conversations around the Canaanite dinner tables or in the, in the Canaanite courts and the Canaanite, at the gates of Canaanite cities. We know those conversations were going on because we remember the story of Rahab. Remember when we were talking about her a few weeks ago. Story of Rahab. Why did Rahab decide to hide the Israelite spies? Well, let's go back. She said, uh, Rahab said at that time, before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that Yahweh, the Lord, has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us. This is, this is days before they crossed the Jordan. For we have heard how the Lord, how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you, have, whom you devoted to destruction. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. So, so what are the people of Canaan doing? They're starting to connect the dots. Before they even crossed the Jordan, word had spread. These are the, those people camped on the other side of the river. Those are the ones that our parents told us about that escaped from Egypt because their God afflicted the Pharaoh and his entire nation with ten plagues and then swallowed up his army in the midst of the sea after they had crossed over on dry land. And then, just more locally, we saw him kill two of the most powerful kings in our neighborhood. So they're already scared, but, they're, but you, you see them connecting the dots. It's like, oh, wait a minute. This is a group that crossed the Red Sea and now they've crossed the Jordan River? Well, don't think you can hide from them on the other side of a creek. Their God is with them. And so the word is spreading. Their reputation is spreading. And God has already prepared all of the victories ahead of them. Moreover, can you imagine the spies going back to the king of Jericho and saying, they've already built a victory monument. They've already built a boundary stone like they own the place. Because they do. Now then, something happens that absolutely teases every biblical scholar, student, uh, 
uh, area of my, of my being. It's, it's a kind of, this is the kind of thing that I'm sorry pastors, theologians, and Bible students really geek out about, okay? Because that's what happened. It's one of those things where I was reading this recently again, and, and something new hit me. And you're going to think, gosh, this is really weird because Bob's really, Bob's really interested in circumcision, okay? So look at chapter 5, 2 through 9. But it all goes together, I promise. Now, now what have they just done? They've just crossed the, they've just crossed the river. They're, about to, they're, they're invading the land. And what happens? At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gebeath Harloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. And though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. Okay. So let, let me just describe this to you. I, uh, I don't want to describe I'm not going to describe it to you. Let me tell you what's happening here. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so, the people who came out of, is, out of Egypt had been through, you know, they were raised as, as Jews in Egypt. They had all been circumcised. But that generation, when they came out into the desert, had failed on lots of different fronts, had they not? They'd lost faith, they complained, all these things. And one of the things that they never did, apparently, even though they had a 40-year window to do it, was that they did not circumcise their children, which means, and when I say their children, I mean, of course, their male sons, which is the sign of the covenant of the people. So they just, so what does that mean? They got slack. Even though they'd been brought up right, they stopped sending their kids to Sunday school. Even though they stopped teaching them the things they'd been taught. They did not pass on the covenant. I mean, and we see that, I mean, it's like, that, you know, that's, that's not the only thing they did, but it's one more, it's one more brick in the wall, isn't it? Just one more, one, I mean, this is something we haven't even heard about before. But now Joshua, and it, all, it made me really nervous the first time when it says, and, you know, you're going to circumcise them a, a second time. I'm like, no, wait, what? Um, <laughs> thankfully, thankfully, I understand it now. Um, but, but, you know, this was, you know, why is this important? What is important about circumcision? Why does this matter? Well, first of all, first of all it's a sign. It is a, it is a mark of covenant identity. Okay? And what that means, it's, as the way, the way um, Augustine would later describe it is uh, this and baptism. He says that it is a visible sign of an invisible grace. It's like baptism in the sense that it is something physical that represents and points to something real and spiritual. And we do it so that, so that we have something tangible, so that, we can, so that we can see it, so we can know it, so that we can feel it, and we can recognize the reality of something we can't see and touch and feel. Now, neither baptism nor, uh, uh, nor uh, circumcision 
was considered to be salvific in and of itself. You were not saved by being circumcised. You were not saved by being baptized. That was a sign of what God had done for you. Remember, when were children, when were boys supposed to be circumcised? On their eighth day. Were, did any of those kids respond to an altar call and say, I want to be circumcised because I want to give my life to Yahweh? No. It was about God's decision to save them through His covenant with His people. Okay, so it is about what God has done for his people. Now, all right, so let's, let's get down and dirty for a minute. Why circumcision? Okay, why, why? Anybody got any ideas? Okay, for one, nobody else was doing it. Because number one, why? <laughs> I mean, nobody's going to say, you know, we really ought to do something that's going to set us apart. I got an idea. Okay, anyplace else, that guy was stoned to death, okay? But for some reason, because God said it, they did it. But why there? I mean, seriously, I mean, I'm not trying to be juvenile or anything, but why there? Well, first of all, what, what does it represent? Number one, it's permanent. I mean, number one, it's permanent. You can't undo that, okay? Number two, it's intimate. <laughs> you know, it is... I mean, you, you want to talk, you know, go straight to the heart, straight to the, you know, straight to the most intimate place. That's, that is what it represents. This is, you know, this is, this, you, you can't get any closer or more personal than this. And so, you know, it's unchangeable and it's personal. Connects, Connects to the next generation, Exactly. I mean, it has to do with all the, I mean, it, as a, so as a generational sign, absolutely. And I, you know, and I, I love it. You know, people are always, I, I've heard so many people and read so many articles where people say, well, you know, flint knives, they're, <laughs> you, know, the, you know, flint knives, you know, they're actually, if you, you know, when you get into it, they're actually sharper. They're razor sharp. They're sharper than any kind of metal knife. So that's better. And I'm like, and you know, my response to that is, so? <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> you got the sharpest scalpel. That, doesn't, that does not make this more appealing. Okay, but what does, you know, so, so again, they come across the river. <laughs> I, lo I just love, I mean, you want to talk about your bad jobs. Joshua is like, all right, guys, good job. We're across the river. I've been exalted as your leader. Guess what's next? <laughs> I mean, here we go. All right, so, and, and you know, and, and, and the worst thing about it, I mean, because remember, he is of the previous generation, so... You know, it's not. It's like, yeah, I'm gonna have to watch it this time. Yeah, I've already been through this, but I was a kid, so I don't remember it. But, 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 what is this saying? Okay, so, so first of all, what is this saying about the people of this generation? Remember, most of these. I mean, yes, there are children, there are boys there, but most of the people who are about to be circumcised are what? They're adults. You know, men of fighting age, or beyond it, or just beneath it. But they are aware. You know, that, that, you know I, I, what that says to me is, these guys are committed. Now we, are, we are, okay, if God says it, Joshua, we said we were going to follow you <laughs> just as we did Moses. We're going to do it. And what you see here is not just God's commitment to the people through His covenant, but you see, the people's commitment to him. 
Now, also think about this from a military, tactical, strategic point of view. You're about, you are now in enemy territory. And what are we going to do before we start fighting the battle? We're going to take, take our army and we're going to wound every single one of them. So we're just, we're just changing the odds a little bit here. Because I guarantee you, they were not excited. It's like, okay, if, they, if, the, if the people of Jericho, if the Canaanites attack and we're in this position, that's not going to be fun. But, so, but one more layer to this. Think about this. What do you think those Canaanite scouts in the bushes were thinking when they saw this happen? These guys are hardcore. Oh my God. They did what? They go back to the king of Jericho. They did what? They tell the army, the commander of the army, they did what? If they will do that to themselves, what would they be willing to do to us? This, I mean, again, we, we, this is not the felt board version of, uh, you know, this Sunday, the kids' Sunday school version of what happened at the Battle of Jericho. But there is, I mean, this is the psychological warfare that is, that is taking place before the, the Battle of Jericho. Um, and then, all right, so then what happens? Then what happens? The next thing that happened, Joshua 5, 10 through 12. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month and the evening on the plains of Jericho. What? They're in the enemy territory. They've just mutilated themselves. If you're a Canaanite, that's the way it looks. And now they're doing what? They're having a feast? And first of all, that seems really arrogant. That's a lot of hubris. Who do they think they are? This is our territory. How dare they come onto our, onto our territory and have a feast? What's this feast about, feast about anyway? Oh, well, I heard them talking about, it was about when, it, it's, it's all about remembering when, when their God brought them out of Egypt and how, how he struck down every firstborn child of Egypt and saved their children. King of Jericho is like, say again what this feast is about. It's about the victory of their God. Not only is this the first Passover in the promised land, which is worthy of note all of itself, it's what? It's a victory celebration. So they've already built a victory monument, and now they're having a victory feast. And we haven't even fought the battle yet. Are you starting to understand why the Canaanites' stomachs and hearts were melting? These guys were willing to cut themselves before even coming into battle with us. These, I mean, their ancestors ran away like children. But these guys... Are, are hardcore and full of faith. But I want you to know one more thing. It's still, it seems like one more thing, one more thing. There is one more thing. Check this out. Verse 11. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel. 
but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. What is God, you know, what's, what's God saying with that statement? You've had your Passover. You're now in the promised land. What's he saying? No more need for this. I'm still providing for you, but I'm doing it how? Through the, from the land flowing with milk and honey. I mean, on the one hand, the Hebrews were probably like, Oh, Lord, we don't have any manna anymore. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I've eaten manna six ways to Sunday. I can't do it anymore for 40 years. But they're also saying, He's already given us the victory. He's already given us the land. We're, never, we're not going to have to worry about food anymore. He's already provided for us. I mean, not only have they built a, a monument to their victory, not only have they had a victory feast, now they've already laid claim to everything in the land. I mean, again, they are either, they are either gutsy and arrogant or they're right. It's going to be one or the other. This is an all-or-nothing battle that is coming. And so, so there they are. I mean, they are, you know, they are saying, this, you know, our God is going to provide for us. And, and please understand, when God stops giving them manna, so they go take the land, this is not, this is not like Cortez burning his ships at Veracruz so, they've got no, so they can't go back. This is him saying, I've given this to you. I've already laid it all out for you. It's there. You just need to trust me and move into this land that I'm giving you. So again, I want to just quickly identify a couple of these parallels that are so important. Um, remember, as I said, history doesn't always repeat, but it does rhyme. God's blessings are shown to each generation, but sometimes they're represented in different ways. We have a, mo we have a leader, Joshua, who's now been vindicated by miracles, just like Moses. So Joshua and Moses, that's a parallel. We've got the Red Sea and the Jordan. That's a parallel. We now have Passover. Right before the exit, right before they leave Egypt, as soon as they come in to the Promised Land, reminding them of God's blessings and victory. We've got circumcision, reminding them of the covenant that God's made on each on each side of this, uh, of this divide. I want to go back to those standing stones, though, the Ebenezer. There's one, there's one, um, one symbol that seems to be missing, and that's God's law. Where is it? Where is God's law? And I think it's fascinating. The standing stones, those Ebenezers, you know, you know I, this, this is pure theological speculation on my part. But my question is, why did God have them build two Ebenezers? And with all these other parallels, why, why, two, why two Ebenezers? Well, they've got, you've got the one on the land, you've got the one in the water. You know, why? Well, I thought about the two tablets of the law. The two, you know, the, you know, the, you know, the first five commandments, the second five commandments. Think about the two times, you know, when God issued the Ten Commandments, you know, first, the, the first set of stones that, that Moses smashed, had to smash at the golden calf incident, and then, of course, the, the second that they carried with them throughout the rest of their days. I mean, again, I, I don't know exactly if that parallel is valid, 
but it sure seems to speak to me when you look at the consistency of all the rest of these things. And, it, and the main thing is that these things all weave together to show that the God who brought them out of the land of Egypt is the God who is also going to bring them into the land of promise and who has brought them into the land of promise. You move forward into the New Testament. Where was Jesus baptized? In the river. I wonder if he was anywhere near that Ebenezer. Just a thought. I wonder if, you know, I wonder if when, you know, when, when God, when they pulled back, when God pulled back the curtain, you know, for James and John and, and Peter, if they at all connected the dots between what God had done for Joshua and what God had done for Moses. I wonder if they put these things together. I want, you know, there, there are lots of questions like that, but, but I think this is, you know, this is one of the reasons we study, you know, that, you know, study the Old Testament. You know, the connection, I mean, here's the people of Israel left, the prom, uh, left Egypt after a feast where the blood of the lamb saved them. They came, into, they came into Canaan. And next week we'll talk about the sort of the symbolic connection between the red cord and the Passover. But here they are celebrating the Passover in the promised land as they enter into the land of promise. And Jesus, the night before he was betrayed, gathered his disciples together. Where? At the Passover meal. Before he shed his blood to save us. I mean... It's not repeating, but it is rhyming, isn't it? And so anyway, I want to leave you with that today. And next week, we're finally going to get to that place. It, it seems like it's taken the people of Israel less time to get to Jericho than it's taking us. But that's where we're going to be next week. All right, let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word. And we thank you for the, for the richness of it. We thank you for the, the depth and the power and the consistency. Lord, help us to see that if you can connect these events, you can also connect your word to our lives and our lives to your promises. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much and have a great day.